join with Nathan and the other brethren in welcoming you here this morning. We're glad that you've chosen to come and be with us. And as Nathan said, if you're here visiting with us, we're especially glad to have you. We hope that you know that you're an honored guest, and we're excited that you've come to be here this morning and to worship with us. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to take it out and follow along. If uh, you have a Bible app on your phone or other device, I'd encourage you to uh, follow along in that. We're, as I have done the last few Sundays uh, that I have preached, we're going to go through a parable this morning. Uh, that parable is the one that the van read for us out of Matthew, the 22nd chapter. And we're going to go through this parable that Jesus gives to us in inviting us to come to the feast. In Matthew, the 22nd chapter, we're going to begin there in the first verse. It says, And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants, and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. He was angry. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore in the highways, and as many as you shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both good and bad, and the wedding was furnished with guests. Jesus is giving this parable and he's giving them a story with a subject that they would understand. And I want you to notice that this parable that he's given has eternal implications. Jesus isn't just teaching his people about how to live in this life but instead, he's giving a parable here in which he says, this parable will teach you about what the kingdom of heaven is like. What my father's kingdom is like. And he says to them, you see, the kingdom of heaven, if we're going to talk about the kingdom of heaven, it's like a king who tells his servants, go. And bid those who have been invited, tell them the feast is ready. The wedding is ready. Now I want you to notice that when the servants go out, it says when they first go out, those who were invited, those who have been bidden, those who were called, just flat refused to come. Notice what Jesus says the king did. The king takes his servants and he says, Go. Go and tell them that the feast is ready. 
The oxen, the fatlings, the meal is fantastic. This is a feast, a party, if you will, that you want to come to, and it's ready. Now notice here in the parable that Jesus says, this time it was different. This time, those who had been invited, those who have been called, those who have been bidden, didn't just flat refuse. It says that they gave specific reasons. One went out and did some work, went out to his farm. One went to his stuff, went to the merchandise. And then it says that there were even some who when they were called or invited, in fact, took the servants and treated them poorly, in fact, killed them. And what did the king do? Notice there that it does say one thing, that the king got angry about those murderers, the one who had taken and killed his servants. And he dealt with that swiftly. But notice, when nobody who was called, nobody who had been bidden would come, it says he took the other servants and he said, I want you to go out. I want you to go out in the highways. Many translations use the word anyone. All that you will find, I want you to bring them to the feast. And I want you to notice what it says. It says they came into the feast both good and bad. What does all this mean? I hope that as we read this parable that you'll recognize uh, some statements there about the destruction of Jerusalem and the children of Israel, about the anger and the killing of the servants. I hope that you see that historical reference, because I don't want to look at that historical reference this morning. That's not the purpose. I want to look at the reference for today, what you and I can take from this parable. You see, it's easy to look at this portion of this parable and stop here and see the mercy and the grace and the love of God. It's easy to take this portion of the parable and say, see, that's the love of God. Come as you are. The feast is for everyone. But I want you to look at verse 11. Matthew, the 22nd chapter, in verse 11, it says, When the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not a wedding garment. And he said unto him, Friend, how camest thou hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called... But few are chosen. 
It's unfortunate that at verse 11, this parable of love and sweetness seems to take such a dark turn. But there has to be some reason that the Son of God gave this parable to his disciples. There must have been some reason that the Son of God gave this parable and said, I want to tell you about the invitation. I want to talk about the call this morning. You'll notice that Jesus made it clear that some who are called will flatly refuse the invitation. You know, David recognized this in his Psalms, and in fact, in two different Psalms, he made this statement, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, David began both of these Psalms with this term. What does this tell us? There are some who simply will not believe. There are some who simply do not believe. In fact, the scriptures recognize it. That there are those who in fact say in their heart, I want you to notice that this isn't some flippant statement. What David says here is not that someone goes around making a show saying, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in your God. I don't believe in this. In fact, it goes much deeper than that. David said, the fool says where? Not the fool will say to your face. Not the fool will make a show of saying these things. But in fact, David said it goes all the way to the heart. The fool will say in his heart, whether he says it out loud or not, there is no God. The unfortunate fact is that there are those who will miss the invitation because in their heart, they believe there is no God. But you know, if that was the only way to refuse the invitation, then it would make refusal real easy. We would just have to know if in here we believe there is a God. I want you to notice what Paul said to the Romans in Romans the 10th chapter. Paul, speaking of the children of Israel, said in Romans the 10th chapter and verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I want you to notice that Paul said, I have a strong desire. And this is much more than any other desire. In fact, this is a desire that I have in my heart that I have made known to God through prayer. And let me tell you about the strength of this desire and this passion that I have for Israel. Here's what I want for Israel. I want for Israel to be saved. I want for Israel to enter into the kingdom. I want for Israel to be in the king's presence. For Paul said, I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. I have such a desire for Israel that I have made that, that desire known to God through prayer. 
And I have prayed for them that they might be saved. Because I want them to be in the king's presence. And let me tell you about them. They have a zeal for God. They're not like that fool that says in their heart there is no God. In fact, they believe in God and they have a zeal for God. You know, sometimes we use the term, those are good people. Those are good people. They know God. They have a zeal for God, but here's the problem. The problem is the zeal that they have for God is not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. I want you to notice what Paul says here about the children of Israel. He says of the children of Israel, here's my desire. My desire is that I have lifted Israel up to God. Through my prayers, I have lifted them up because I want them to be saved. I want them to be in the presence of the Almighty. Because I can tell you right now, I bear them record, he says. I can tell you right now, they have a zeal for God. But unfortunately, that zeal for God isn't according to knowledge. You see, they rejected God's righteousness and have determined to set about making their own righteousness. They failed to submit their, themselves to the God that they believe in. They failed to submit themselves to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he said this, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. There's a sad point in this version, not in this version of the Bible, but, but in this portion of what Paul says to the Romans. The sad fact is this. What Paul was saying is, currently, as they are, the children of Israel are not saved. That's what Paul was declaring. Paul was declaring that while they choose their own righteousness and refuse to submit and refuse to be obedient and refuse to recognize the blood of the only Savior, in this state they are not saved. You know what the parable was teaching us? is not only that there are those who will outright refuse, who will not believe in God, that there are those who believe in God and may have a zeal but in some way they refuse to submit. In some way they refuse to believe in the Son. In some way they've chosen themselves over the invitation. But you know in the parable it tells us that not only are there some who outright refuse the invitation, there are some it says, who simply make light of it. Who don't recognize the importance of this invitation. I've put there, there are some who will ignore the invitation. What does that mean? You see, as it ends here, 
He says, many are called, but few are chosen. It says, the king said, you've been invited, come to the feast. And many simply didn't come. And he tried again, and he said, you've been invited, come to the feast. And there were some who made light of it. There were some who thought the farm or the merchandise was more important. But did you notice that there was another one? There was another one who didn't pay enough attention to the invitation. You see that? You see, I said that there was a point in this story where it turned real dark. You see, I'm not so concerned about those who refused. Why? Because none of you here this morning are those. If you were, you wouldn't be here. You certainly wouldn't have listened to me up to this point. But see, there's a problem. Because Jesus said the king went in to see the guests, see all who had come, all who had heeded the invitation. And as he went around, he recognized one didn't have on the right garments. There a dress code in heaven? You know, Ian and I, we, we joked about, you know, maybe some people missed the, the point of the parable and, and they would look at this and they would say, yeah, you know what? That's why we have the term Sunday best. You dress Sunday best when you come in here. That's important to me. That's a good tradition if that's your tradition, but I assure you that's not what this meant. If it is, James 2 was wrong. And we can't take this and say that Matthew 22, because it's in the words of Christ, that one's right, but James was simply wrong. We got a real problem if we do that. See, in James chapter 2, it says that when one comes in in great and beautiful garments, Sunday best, and another comes in, and the term they use is vile raiment. Vile means not just offensive, but offensive to the point that it truly turns your stomach, that it truly turns your spirit. In fact, James said there, you know what, if, if, if you look at the one in the vile raiment and the one in the wealthy raiment, the beautiful one, and you say, come, sit up here in the spe- special place to the one in beautiful raiment, and you say, but you, you sit back there, you, you be a footstool. In fact, we don't really want you here. That you have respective persons, and that's nothing like God. You see, that's what dress codes do. See, that, that's a dress code. And I get it. There are some things we don't want to see. There, we still have to be um, chaste. We still uh, have to use some self-control. There are certain parts we don't want shown, and we don't want shown at all. I get it. So when you come up to me, don't come up to me afterwards and go, yeah, but you know if you show too much. That has nothing to do with Matthew 22. So if you want to argue that point, we can argue that point. But I need you to recognize Matthew 22 has nothing to do with those standards. 
Matthew 22 is this. If you want to know what a wedding garment was, when those of this time period, they knew and they understood that when you were going to a wedding, that you went in white, pure clothing. When you put on your wedding garment, you put on a garment that was white and free from blemish. And evidently, this one man didn't do that. Why is that in the parable? You know, in Matthew, the fourth chapter, there's a statement here that becomes very important in understanding our Savior. In Matthew, the fourth chapter, in verse 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Where did Jesus start? And by where, I don't mean location on a map geographically. Where, I mean... When he began his ministry, where did Jesus begin? Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, when Jesus began to preach and began to teach, it says he started at this point, and here's where he began. He began with repent. What does that mean? He began with change. You know, we use that and we say repent means to turn. It literally means to change. How many of us like that? Me neither. You know, change can be very difficult. But you know what Jesus said? Jesus said change. Jesus started with transform who you are. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a lot closer than you think. The kingdom of heaven is near. 2 Peter, the third chapter, verse 9, Peter says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I want you to notice something that Peter recognizes. Peter recognizes this. Peter recognizes the importance of eternity. And with that, he says, this has to do with salvation. And I want you to know that the Lord is not slack concerning His promise. He's long-suffering to usward, but there's going to come a point where salvation and judgment is at hand. The Lord's not willing that any should perish, but... But there's got to be a transforming. There's got to be a changing within us. James, the second chapter, says, Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. You know, it's easy to see what David was saying there in the Psalms when he said, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. It's another thing when we say, 
yes, but see, I'm different. I believe. I not only believe there is a God, but I believe that God sent his son and stopped there. You see, James, in James the second chapter, if you think about James the second chapter, it's a pretty heavy chapter because it starts out with respective persons and making a wealth statement there, a socio- socioeconomic statement there, comparing wealthy to poor, and saying, you know, with our eyes, we can see that. But we have to be real careful and we have to train ourselves not to judge on that basis. And then he goes on to talk about faith. But more importantly, he goes on to talk about faith and works and their intersection and how they play together. And in fact, it's in James' second chapter that he says, Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. And in fact, James goes on to say this. A faith without works is in fact dead. It is no more. It's finished. You know, it's a pretty heavy chapter. And after he says a faith without works is in fact a dead faith. He says, you believe there's one God? You're not a fool. But I do want you to know that the devils believe that there's one God. The the devils. Now, you know, sometimes we might miss the point of this. Because that term devil, I'm no devil. You see, devils, those are those, yeah, that's, that's kind of a scary statement, right? But I want you to notice something about whatever he's referring to as devils which is certainly not the faithful here. I want you to notice, he says, the, the devils, they believe. And let me tell you how deeply they believe. They believe so deeply that they tremble. Matthew, the seventh chapter, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I hope this portion of the Sermon on the Mount puts a lot of fear in you. Why is that? These aren't my words. These aren't some other man's words or Ian's words or some really great speaker's words. This is the Son of God. And he says this, there are going to be many who not only believe but they confess my name. You get it? There's going to be many who recognize me as Lord. And they're going to say unto me, Lord, Lord. And they won't enter in. There will be many who believe in my name. And they will confess my name. And they'll say unto me, Lord, Lord, let me show you my works. 
Have I not prophesied in your name? Have I not in your name cast out devils? You see, I didn't cast out devils in the name of some man. In fact, I didn't cast out devils in the name of some other God. I prophesied in your name. In fact, let me tell you how great I've done. I not only prophesied and cast out devils, I've done many wonderful works in your name. You ever notice that? We would like to look at this and go, yeah, but they didn't mean that. The Lord didn't mean that. What he meant was that there are those who would come to him and say that they had called out in the name of other gods and they believed in other gods, and that's not what Jesus said. What Jesus said is, there'll be many who will say unto me, Lord, Lord, in thy name have I not prophesied, and in thy name have I not cast out devils, and in thy name. At the name of Jesus Christ have I not done many wonderful works. And for some reason, Jesus would say, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I hope that puts fear in you. And I'll tell you why. Because we can't deny... that those Jesus were talking about were speaking directly to him, calling on his name, doing works in his name. But there's one thing Jesus said that was very important. I never knew you. book of Isaiah, Isaiah says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They, they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. In Acts, the second chapter, in talking about this, Peter proclaims to the children of Israel there, Peter said unto them, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remissions of sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. A recognition that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. A recognition that through obedience, when the children of Israel asked, brethren, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you this. <clears throat> On your left-hand side up here, there are words there in yellow. Believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. That's obedience. And I've added faith and works because we've talked a lot about that this morning. I want to know which one of those on your left-hand side that are in yellow, can you leave off? Which one could we get rid of and say, yeah, it's still okay? 
Is it okay if we don't believe? I mean, wouldn't it be okay if we were to say, look, I know there's something, and if God truly loves, then he's going to let me in anyway. If it's not belief and we have to have belief, then what about a change? What about repentance? Is it okay if we don't fully change? I mean, is it okay if we look at it and we say, but see, that's just how I am? You see, I've been through something in life that just makes me mean. Deal with it. Is that all right? You see, I'm not like everybody else. I didn't have all the things. I don't have all the things. I've been through something that's really, really tough. So I don't have to change. And if God really loves, maybe we could get rid of repentance. What about confession? Is it all right if, if we, in our heart, we know, but we don't show anybody, is that, is that okay? What about, what about obedience? Can we say, look, I believe, and if God is love, then that's enough. Why do I have to be obedient to him? Why do I have to submit to him? Is that enough? What if we just got rid of that one? Couldn't we say that we still have a strong faith? In fact, look at my works, look at the things that I've done. You know, if you look at this list, it's one thing to look at this list and to say, you know, it's hard to argue against taking one of those out because I don't want to be offensive. But let me make it a little harder. Is there any one of these that you could look at on the left-hand side that are in yellow here and say that one is enough? That one all by itself is enough. What if I believe real hard? Isn't that enough? In fact, what, what, if, what if I repent and I changed more than most people do. Look, I changed a lot. Look, okay, so I'm, I refuse to change some things. But, but you know what? I've changed a lot. And that should be enough. Is that enough? What if you've been baptized? You know, I refuse to change my heart. I refuse to change my life. I refuse to change who I am. But you know what? When I was 16 years old, I was baptized. Is that enough? Is it enough if I were to say, you know, I believe and I repent. In fact, I confessed at one time and I was obedient to him in baptism. But at 18 years old, a really bad thing happened to me. And ever since then, life's just been different for me. And I don't want to have faith. But you know what? That should be good enough. I mean, isn't that what the man who came into the wedding feast and said, you, you bid us to come? In fact, you bid us to come and I came. 
I just didn't want to dress like everybody else. I just didn't want to wear that white. I just didn't want to be in that garment. That garment's uncomfortable for me. I didn't like that garment. Or maybe I don't like everybody else who is here. (laughs) So I just didn't want to look like them. I want you to look on the right-hand side real quick. You know, we talk about wealth and poverty. How much wealth would it take to change the invitation for you? Thought about that? How much wealth would it take a man to build up so that he doesn't have to believe, he doesn't have to confess, he doesn't have to submit, he doesn't have to be obedient. In fact, he doesn't have to be faithful because he's just got enough money. You ever thought of that? What about poverty? How poor can you be that you get to change the invitation? You ever thought of that? See, it's easy for us to look at wealthy people and say, well, wealthy people, see, they have their reward. They depend on their stuff. They depend on their money. I'm poor. How poor do you have to be to the point you get to change the invitation? You see, I like it said this way. You know, if you're mean and you're wealthy, you're still just mean. If you're mean and you're poor, guess what? You're still just mean. (laughs) You know, there's some really kind, wealthy people. And there's some really kind, poor people. What about power? How powerful does a person have to be to the point that he gets to change the invitation. How much influence does a person have to have where they get to change the invitation? What about struggle? You know, I can tell you there's a lot of people who struggle more than other people. There's some people who make it through life and really the struggle is not all that much. And then there's some that i got to tell you, I'm surprised they make it through life. How much struggle do you have to go through before you can say, yeah, but see, I had so much struggle, I get to change the invitation. How much blessing do you have to be given in life where you can say, I didn't really have all that much struggle, I must be good, now therefore I get to change the invitation to fit me. How strong do you have to be to get to the point where you can say, I'm a man. And because I'm a man, I'll do life my way. And because I do life my way, I get to change the invitation. Think of it this way. Which one of those on your right-hand side in white is good enough Strong enough, foundational enough to replace one on the left. But isn't that sometimes what we want to do? Isn't that sometimes how we want to look at the gospel? 
We want to look at the gospel and say, yeah, but isn't it okay that I just come? I just come to the feast. He invited everybody. He invited the good and the bad. And if you're right, Franklin, then why would he call it the good and the bad? Why would he do that? Why would he have told his disciples at that point that there were some who were called? Who would he have been talking about to them? You see, the religious people of that day, the children of Israel, they had studied for and looked for and prayed for and hoped for a coming Messiah. But in going after their own righteousness, they put him to death. And they decided that they could replace any number of these with wealth and power and strength and status. Do we do that today? See, in Matthew, the 11th chapter, Jesus gave the invitation. And he said this, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a recognition that Jesus said this. Jesus said, I am going to call everyone. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Who does that not fit? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will do what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. For I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I hope you notice that I skipped something there. Because here's what I want to do. I want to make this Savior who gave his life on the cross for me. I want to make this Savior who gave his life on the cross at me, for me and as long as I believe, and as long as I do certain things like putting God we trust on my car, and as long as people look up to me, and as long as I have a little power, and as long as I have a little stuff, that's good enough for me, and that's what the Savior said. That's the invitation, but that's not what he said. He begged you to come. He said, come unto me, all ye that labor. Everyone is called. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. What's that mean? What does it mean to learn from somebody? You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, you want to find rest? You want to put the burdens down? You want to get rid of the sin? You want to find rest? You want to talk about salvation? Come to me, I've got it. Come to me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn of me. What's it mean to learn of Christ? You see, we talked about wealth and poverty and status and influence and power and struggle and strength. You know what Jesus said? 
Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of love. Learn of peace. Learn of joy. Learn of forgiveness. Learn of self-control. You know, when you talk about learning of love, then, then you have to look at that Jesus was saying, come unto me all ye that labor and learn of kindness. Learn of patience. Learn of hope. Learn of endurance. Because you see, we've, we've all been through struggle. Maybe your struggle's a lot tougher than mine. We've all got some influence in our life. Maybe mine is a little more than yours. You know, at the end of the day, none of that matters. If it wasn't for the Savior who came and gave his life for you. And that Savior gives every single one of us the invitation to recognize that he shed his blood for you. To recognize that he's given you an opportunity to have your sins completely washed away. That when you come to the feast, it's as if those sins were gone, covered, white as snow at the bidding of the Father. If you're not a child of God this morning, the Lord gives you this invitation to come to Him, to be obedient to Him. We're prepared to assist you in that obedience and baptism this morning. If you are a child of God and there's some thing that we can pray with you or for you, we invite you to come forward and have a seat on the front row as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.